0: Please Stand Clear of the Doors.
1: All who come to this happy place, welcome.
0: Por favor, manténganse alejado de las puertas.
2: Hello, and welcome to Please Stand Clear of the Doors. I am your host, Stevie, and as always, joining me, Pappy, how are you tonight?
3: I'm doing great, Stevie, a little bit better than you.
2: Yeah, I feel <clears throat> a little under the weather, which, has anyone ever said above the weather for
3: feeling good? I feel above the weather I know you... right now.
2: That's awesome. But I
3: might be the first person to say that. Yeah. I... <laughs> I don't... I've never heard that before. No one's,
2: like, above the weather just died, if anybody's ever said that. But today, what are we discussing, Pappy?
3: We're here to talk about the nine old men. And Stevie, what did you know about the nine old men before we did our little research project?
2: Absolutely nothing. I didn't know that these nine old men even existed.
3: I had heard some of the names, but it was all pretty new to me uh, as well. And so this is our second history episode where we do a deep dive into something about Disney history. And it kind of made sense to talk about them. Uh, just because they were so influential in the movies and shows and stuff that we're talking about in this early part of the company's history.
2: And uh, where does the term nine old men even come from?
3: So it was bestowed by Walt, I think, sometime in the 1950s, and it was based on a nickname for the Supreme Court at the time. And they were a group of nine hires who he considered his most trusted animators, And he dubbed them the nine old men, which was kind of weird, too, because they were only like in their mid 40s at the time. They weren't even that old. But yeah, they basically came to influence every part of the Walt Disney Corporation. Um, I think we actually have a clip here. The more and more that you can become that character, the more you feel like that character, the better your animation will be. An animator is an actor. He gets a scene. He has to act it out on paper.
1: For most of their careers, they were known as the Nine Old Men. It was Walt Disney's nickname for the most talented of his animation staff. Four of the Nine Old Men were in Orlando for the dedication of Disney Studios Florida. More than anything else, the presence of Ward Kimball, Mark Davis, Frank Thomas, and Ollie Johnston made the opening official.
4: We were influenced by a guy named Disney. I mean, Walt, he acted and he was a great storyteller, and you have to have somebody like that who's kind of uh, has the vision of what you're trying to do.
2: Those two guys at the end, uh, we'll get to it later. But there is no school like the old school.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that in a little bit because those guys are the best of friends. But <clears throat> well, I did, We discussed this earlier, but where did Walt Disney's? He had a little money before getting into animation, and um, did you know this about his father?
3: That he owned a jelly factory. I had no
2: idea he owned a jelly factory.
3: Well, they had mentioned like in part of the financing for Snow White that they had risked the family fortune, which so I assume that he came from some kind of money, but I didn't know it was a jelly factory. I didn't know it was a Disney j- jelly. I didn't know it was a jelly yeah, factory I no either.
2: Idea. I didn't know he like dropped out of high school, joined the army, and then all this happened. I had no idea about that pre like Walt story
3: right yeah so this so if we're going back in time a little bit after snow white like all of these hires took place between 1927 and 1935 so it was really during that period of after he had started to or he left universal and was starting to develop these uh original characters and then we talked about how the hiring really geared up when he was getting ready for snow white so a lot of these guys were in their mid-20s um yeah, Les Clark, the first guy, was really early in 1927, but most of them were in the mid 30s. And pretty much all of them went on to work on Snow White and then kind of worked their way up the corporate ladder. Um, I don't know. Did you find any kind of similarities between the ones you did research on? We, uh, we split them down the middle. So Stevie took half of them and I took half of them.
2: Um, <clears throat> you're probably better at connecting dots than I am. Like outside of like Frank Thomas's and Ally's friendship. These guys are, at least they, the ones I did, are far, far different from one another. Like, some of them came from money, some of them were dirt poor, some of them had a brilliant education, some of them didn't. It just, they kind of, they were very spread across the board. How about you?
3: Yeah, I, a lot of them, I think, like, were taking a chance. They were all super young when they came to Disney, and a lot of them had a lot to learn. Kind of like you said, some of mine had our education, some of them didn't, some of them went on to take on bigger roles than others. Um, And I guess I also sort of have the question here of why these nine were considered the nine old men, and that's kind of an interesting story. Uh, Well, for one, none of these guys walked out during an animation strike that took place during the 40s, so I think it was part of that, like, loyalty thing from Walt.
2: These are the guys that Walt could trust with his animated life.
3: Basically, yeah, (laughs) and then... You might wonder, like, why was Fred Moore not included? And I think we talked about Fred Moore a little bit on the Mickey episode, but he's one of the most influential animators in the history of Disney. I think um, he's
2: the backbone of all animation in Disney.
3: He but. basically helped create Mickey Mouse. Uh, he was the supervising animator on Snow White, and he was a mentor to a lot of these guys. Like, we'll hear Ollie Johnson talk about how important uh, Fred Moore was to his career, but unfortunately, Fred Moore had some problems. <laughs> He was an alcoholic and actually was fired by Disney, then rehired later. And that really just set his career back. He ended up reporting uh, to a lot of the nine old men later on in his career, like the guys he had mentored. Mm-hmm. And his career just didn't last that long. Um, no. He passed away in 1952. So that's probably why he's left off of the nine old men conversation.
2: I think so, too. Um, like you said, it's his story is like the sadder out of the like the people that could eventually, what could have been like the 10 or 11 old men.
5: Mm -hmm.
2: Like, his story went dark. And also, um, in a lot of these stories and chapters we were reading, it sounds like Disney was an insanely chaotic place to work. Oh, yeah. Like, these guys were putting in 10 to 12-hour days, then going into night animation school, or just furthering their education even more. Um, They were working in pools with each other. Some were better than others. Um, I wouldn't say it was cutthroat, but... You could definitely tell there was undermining even amongst the nine, which there's a clear Mm -hmm. example we'll get to in a little while, but it just seemed like a really hands-on deck place to work at all times, and that would be insanely difficult mentally.
3: So we have one more clip here. This is actually from uh, the Peter Pan DVD uh, release, and it's from Frank Thompson's son, Ted, and it's a documentary called Growing Up with the Nine Old Men, um, based on their families. And we'll jump into the uh, reviews themselves, or sorry, the uh, Nine Old Men themselves. So let's go ahead and hit play on that clip. Kind of got
6: started was the
7: idea of, you know, I get, keep being asked again and again when I do interviews about, how charmed my childhood must have been, you know, and wasn't it magical, and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because.
1: <laughs> yeah. During the 50s, Dad would have us come out with Mom Oh, a couple times during the summer and have lunch with him. And then he'd take us around and show us what he was working on. And you come in on the weekend, and you walk up those big stairs of the animation Building, the big aluminum frame doors, and you look down the hall, shiny linoleum. Mm-hmm. Shiny
8: linoleum. Mm-hmm. Long hallways filled with lots of pictures from all the films.
0: And I remember packing a little lunch and going with him, uh, and I would find a place under the movieola
7: with my little sketch pad. I remember going to the studio with Dad and sitting at a neighboring office with the the board in front of me and I get the paper out and put it in and I get the pencil and I thought something was going to happen. (laughs) 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 Nothing
2: happened.
1: You know the rubber bands at the studio? Mm. You put a whole bunch of them together and put them between two doors. She had a slingshot down the hall. (laughs) In those days there were metal cars. No plastic cards. The goal was to try and get it to the end, whether it was on its wheels or not, and smack into the end of the door. So I go down, and it smacks, door opens, and there's Walt Disney. <laughs> <laughs> he walks in. Hello. <laughs> okay.
3: that's.
2: <laughs> Ollie's kid is a spitting image of him.
3: It's pretty funny. <laughs> Let's get into who the nine actually were. So we have them broken down in order of first hired to last hired. So, Stevie, you got the first guy.
2: We have Les Clark, who looks oddly kind of like a young Disney.
3: He looks a lot like Disney. He's got the wavy hair, got the stash. That the had nose. to do
2: something. Like they had to do something with the hire. I'm not saying he wasn't talented, but Walt was probably like, "This kid looks just like me."
7: Les, I like your look, huh? <laughs> Welcome
2: to the team. <laughs> but Les Clark, like you said, uh, was the first hired. Uh, he was hired in 1927. This is about a decade. 11 years before Snow White was released to the country.
3: Before the first Mickey Mouse cartoon even came out. Yeah, this is... he's uh, way early.
2: Yeah, this is Mm pre-Steamboat. And um, he uh, grew up in Venice, went to high school in Venice, uh, which is just a few uh, miles away from where the Disney studio was at this time in Hollywood. And what I found interesting with him is he was not interested in art at all in this point in his life. I mean... He didn't also really seem too concerned with academics either. Uh, He worked at a candy store uh, after high school. And it was kind of a by chance thing that Walt Disney came into the candy shop and he saw Les painting a mirror. And he was extremely impressed with his work. And so after uh, high school graduation, Les went and asked Walt Disney for a job. And Walt kind of sent him out saying, go do some drawings, come back and let me see what you got. And when he came back, Walt hired him on the spot. And uh, his talent for drawing got him the job with Disney, but he didn't begin drawing for a while. Uh, He was placed in charge of operating cameras, which, Pat, you got to admit, this just seems like the most, I I mean, just mind-numbing job in the world. Yeah.
3: I mean, that's the case with a lot of these nine. They all kind of started with the bottom, but most of them at least started as, like, (laughs) in-betweeners. So this guy was just literally, like, moving cameras (laughs) between the frames. I mean,
2: he really was the first of the nine. Like, he started really at ground zero of Disney animation. And so what I also thought was cool was after working for a camera, uh, just, like, placing pictures and working the camera to making sure the shots were lining up, uh, he began to work with who, Pap.
3: Ub Iwerks?
2: Ub Iwerks as an
3: in-betweener.
2: And for those of, I mean, I didn't know what an in-betweener was either. What an in-betweener was, you'd have your main artist that would draw like the main pictures in like main range of motion. And the in were the people who had to do like the fill in the blank scenes.
3: Not the most exciting work.
2: That sounds hard.
3: It sounds hard, and it sounds boring, and it sounds like you don't have a lot of creative control over what you're doing.
2: <laughs> right, and Ub, uh, I mean, he was pretty much uh, Disney's right-hand man at this point. He took Les under his wing, and Les actually worked a lot and did a ton of in-between work for Steamboat Willie. And, I mean, naturally, Ub took a like liking to him. Uh, he was working on silly symphonies. And what I didn't know was, did you know that Ub Iwerks had a falling out with Walt?
3: Uh, I did not know, but I did kind of wonder where he went. He kind of disappeared. We he talked about to him in Disney. an earlier
2: episode, and we never heard from Ub again.
3: <laughs> and, so he leaves Disney, right? He kind of left the company? Yeah, he thought he wasn't fired. getting enough
2: credit. Um, He thought too much of the emphasis was being placed on Walt. Uh, Ub seems kind of one of those guys that worked tirelessly. Not saying that Walt didn't, but... Ub feel like felt like he did not have uh, he was not getting enough recognition, what he thought he should be getting. And this is scary at a time because Mickey Mouse had no animator. <sighs> I mean this is scary. I mean Mickey Mouse is the face of the company and we have no animator.
3: Because Ub left and he was the guy in charge.
2: He was the guy. And so who was placed in charge of Mickey? Our good man, Les Clark, became a chief animator. And his first uh, film doing that for Mickey was uh, The Firefighters. Did you ever see this?
3: I did not, no.
2: No, neither did I. But, um, <laughs> what I, I mean, let's be honest. It, it's not Steamboat Willie, and it's not Fantasia. And that's pretty much the Mickey Mouse, I guess, say upper echelon of where he started. But um, I didn't realize how responsible he was for kind of putting a lot of work into Mickey Mouse and making him look more modern.
3: Well, Mickey Mouse is, like, the flagship property, and to, like, go from 1927 just moving the camera to, like, being in charge of animating him just three years later, that's pretty crazy. That's a meteoric rise.
2: Yeah, and especially from, like we said, like, a lot of these guys went to college and furthered their education. Les didn't. Uh, He was legitimately just working in a candy shop and out of high school, went working for Disney. So you have to imagine how talented this guy is to rise this quickly. Um, he went on to be the animation director for Fun and Fancy Free, um, what else did Lester do here? I didn't realize this, but I also didn't realize this a lot of the, about a lot of the Nine. Uh, Les, when he retired, was the longest, uh, employed person by Disney in 1975, which is sad because he outlived Walt, but, um... As I said, he served for 48 years, passed away on September 12th, 1979, four years after his last drawing. And uh, we have a clip to play because he was the Mickey master.
3: Les Clark was the first of the nine old men to sign on at Disney. Les was in
2: high school. And he worked in a candy store near the old Hyperion Does Jim Street. Fanning oh, look like he would, a uh, Disney character? The menu, up on basically, like needed. <laughs> <of me. laughs> Walt complimented him on his lettering. So when Les graduated from high school in 1928, just like Les. he asked Walt if he could have a job as an artist. And Walt said, "Well, bring your drawings by." And Les put some drawings together and came by. And Walt said, "Okay, you're hired." And he graduated high school on a Thursday. He started at the Disney Studios on that following Monday. And he was still there in the 70s. That's Les crazy. was right there at the dawn of yeah, Mickey Master. Gotta have some cojones and he to do that. Kind of the Master.
6: What a What I always admired about Les's work on Mickey and other characters is the way he would use clothing. When you look at his scenes from The Sorcerer's Apprentice in Fantasia, his Mickey animation, Mickey's wearing this big coat big hat, you know, big coat, loose. So the way he created these folds is unlike any other animator would have done. He really analyzed that. And you could do it in a really simple way, but he got really involved and wanted to show that this coat is heavy, that it's sitting on this little Mickey body, but it has the right amount of weight and that the folds are creating the right type of follow through. So his analysis of clothing is just amazing.
2: All right. All right. What I found really cool about Les is, like, today we live in a very stay-in-your-lane society, don't you think? Yeah. Like, not a lot of people taking, like, chances like this, and it just shows you, like, how talented Les truly was.
3: So that clip was from, uh disney d23 who released uh i think for gold members last year released a special box containing some information so we'll have some clips from from that series and we also have some clips from a uh documentary series from the 80s called disney family album uh which ran from 84 to 86 and did a spotlight on each of the nine old men but so that was les clark the first of the nine now i move on to eric larson who was the second of the nine. And he really added a human touch to, uh, to the nine old men. So like I said, we were, he was the second hired in 1933. So six years after Les Clark, um, uh, after that Mickey mouse period too. Um, and he was born in Utah where he attended the university of Utah and majored in journalism. Uh, he did some cartoon drawing, but he was more interested in journalism itself. Uh, so when the depression hit uh, He made his way from Utah To LA and started working as a writer in a radio station And he did some uh, animations during his spare time uh, And a friend saw, or saw Some of his sketches and animations And told him to go to Walt Where he was pretty much hired on the spa- spot And uh, when he joined Disney he was mentored under Hamilton Luke And quickly was promoted To assistant animator from In Betweener. So again we have another one of the uh, animators starting off in their 20s, starting out as an in betweener, then getting promoted right away. Uh, he then got picked to work on Disney's Folly, quote unquote, uh, Snow White <laughs> as a full time animator. And he, uh, did many of the animals during the whistle while you work sequence.
2: And let's be honest, there was a lot of animals in Snow White.
3: And that's a really great part of the movie, too. Like you have the chipmunks and the squirrels. That's a really memorable sequence that he put a lot of personality to into each one. Um, and so, he would kind of go on to have, like, small animals be his specialty. You'll see this a lot, too. Like, some of the nine old men would have, like, these specific niches that they would work in a lot. So, his next project was Figaro the Cat in Pinocchio, uh, which he called his uh, fondest accomplishment. But he also did a lot of other uh, animals as well. And this will be the case for all of the nine old men. We'll only be able to list some of the things that they did, but they were basically involved in everything through the Name 60s. Name a
2: Disney classic, and a lot of, like pretty much these nine took a part in it.
3: Exactly, yeah. One of them was involved in some way. But he did like the baby animals in Dumbo. Uh, he was heavily involved in Thumper and Bambi, uh, a lot of the dogs in 101 Dalmatians, uh, some of the barn animals in Mary Poppins. And uh, he also did a couple, um, the pastoral symphony in Fantasia. That's the one with like the centaurs. (laughs) It's not the best part of Fantasia. Yeah, but he did that. Um, But in 1973, uh, kind of his responsibilities shifted and he wasn't really drawing anymore, but he was still a really important part of the company. And Eric uh, Larson, ended up taking on more of a role of recruiting talent and serving as a mentor. So we have a clip now from that Disney Family series we can play. Eric
1: Larson has spent a lifetime bringing life to drawings. For these young artists, he's the key that unlocks the secrets to 50 years of Disney animation.
7: Eric was the person that I first met when I applied for a job here. And Eric, to me, is just the answer to everything. And he can help you with your drawing or he can help you with why you can't work that day. You have artist block. Eric, I can't draw. I haven't been able to draw for a week. And somehow he has a way of working you out of it. Um, basically whenever I, I need help with anything, I come here.
5: He always reminds me of just the fundamental things that I tend to forget. You know, it's like animation's so complex and how many drawings are in there and stuff,
2: but Eric always comes back to like, what, does the audience perceive
8: the fact that he stayed here all these? He doesn't need to be here, but it's his love for what the medium can be, and you know, and what he sees in in us as people, and what he can give us that keeps him around. Working with the younger animators has been a great
1: lift. It's part it's part of the studio, and to see a new staff developed, and they are developing fast. We've got some wonderful young people coming along. This has to be a source of satisfaction. And, uh, there's something about young people that helps to keep you young or helps to keep me young, even though I don't, don't look it, <laughs> but the spirit is there. Okay. That's good. But yeah. This sounds so like a dude who loved
2: of- his job.
3: He loved his job. He loved working for Disney. And that's what a lot of the nine old men, like, not only do they have this legacy with like develop, like literally developing animation styles and rules that are still followed, but like developing the corporate culture within Disney especially after Disney passed away so Eric uh, unfortunately passed away in 1988 uh, but he has one of the longest tenures of any of the nine he didn't retire until 1986 after working with Disney for 53 years
2: good so, lord
3: <laughs> yeah, I have one more one more quick clip from Eric where he's talking about uh, designing Figaro here in
1: Pinocchio Eric lent his unique charm to another family. Well, for the most part, I was uh, developing Figaro. He was, a, say, a three- or four-year-old kid that had a mind of his own. Cleo was a nice little sister. Figaro didn't want to have anything to do with so you had a, a nice, typical family play, perhaps. But Geppetto had, he had them around because they were part of his life. Good night, Cleo
3: my little water baby my little water baby all right we should probably pause that before Walt gets too mad but yeah that's eric eric larson uh seems like a really good guy um so now let's go on to the third of the nine talked about les clark talked about eric larson now we go on to wolfgang aka woolly writherman um So, he was hired in 1934, right after Eric Larson, Um, but interestingly, he was actually born in Germany in 1909, and then he immigrated to the United States, uh, to Kansas City, and coincidentally lived right around the corner from Roy Disney when he lived there. Um, In his teens, though, he moved to California, where he wanted to be part of the aviation industry. He was really interested in flying a plane, and even at, there's a lot of stories at that time he didn't need a pilot's license, so he actually had a <laughs> couple of friends who, who who died in plane crashes. He's like, yeah, that shook me up a little bit, but I still wanted to be a pilot. <laughs> and uh, he got into technical drawing, and that, that was kind of his passion. Um, so he was doing these technical drawings for some aviation companies, but in 1932, he decided to quit and re-enroll in art school and decided he wanted to be a watercolor uh, painting expert. Um, but then there was a recruiting animator at that school who was so fond of Wooly's work that he arranged a meeting with Walt and Wooly, uh, who Walt saw the talent right away in Wolfgang and offered him a job, um, which, you know, Walt was in full ramp-up mode at that point, really hiring people. But Wolfgang wasn't <laughs> unsure. He's like, uh, I don't know. I don't know if this is like really what I'm into about animation. And Walt's just like, well, just try it for a few weeks and see what you think. <laughs> and it ended up being like, literally the best decision he ever made in his life. He fell in love with animation right away. And his first project, which we have a little clip of, was a silly symphony called The Funny Little Bunnies, an Easter silly symphony. Let's play a little bit of that now.
2: It's like Hank Aaron not wanting to swing a bat.
3: <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah. So lots of little critters in this. Yeah. Ideal setting. Birds, bunnies.
2: This looks really neat.
3: Mm, the animation, the detail, the color is great.
2: Shadow work is incredible.
3: Mm-hmm. Now I got a scene of bunnies making Easter candy. Okay, <laughs> we can pause it there. But. I
2: would advise so, yeah, any so Disney he, lover to watch that. It's really
3: cool. Yeah, so that that's called the Funny Little Bunnies. It's one of the more famous silly symphonies, and that was really successful. So then he got promoted. Again, we see this sort of progression of a career path with these guys. So he got promoted to working on one of the, you know, main uh, characters, Goofy. In Hawaiian Holiday, he got to do the animation for him while he was surfing. And then uh, he was brought in to work on Snow White, uh, which was the you know the marquee project at the time. And his job was the magic mirror in Snow White. So anytime you see the magic mirror talking to the evil queen, that's uh, Wolfgang Reiserman's work there. Um, he also had another scene, uh, which was cut which we'll talk about uh, again a couple times, you know, Walt Disney's editing strategy for Snow White was super aggressive. A couple of these guys had scenes cut and weren't too happy about it, but (laughs) Walt appreciated the work that he did. And so he was one of the first animators picked for Pinocchio uh, where he was put in charge of the whole monstrous sequence. So from that point on, that really cemented him as one of the top animators in the company and especially for actions, uh sequences. So anytime in those early Disney movies where there's a chase or a fight scene, uh Wooly was heavily involved in that. Including in Fantasia where the dinosaurs fight, and that's Wooly Reitherman. So he was like the first person ever to animate dinosaurs, uh, which is kinda crazy. Uh but World War II broke out and the This German happens with a lot of these guys. Yeah, the German immigrant left Disney to go fight for the United States as a fighter pilot. Uh, he met his wife during that time and returned to work for Disney a a few years later, where he was given his job immediately back. And then from that point on, he worked on every single feature film, uh, for the next 12 years of the company, uh, in 1961. So shortly before Walt's passing, uh, he was promoted to chief animation director, so he's the head of the whole studio pretty much now at this point. Um, and his influences fell everywhere, not just on the animation sequences. He was a big part of deciding what animals would play what parts, so casting the animals <laughs> in Robin Hood. Uh, he had the idea of bringing in Lewis Prima for the orangutan gags in Jungle Book, and his son uh, provided the voice of Mowgli in that movie. So pretty interesting wow. there. Um Yeah. But what he's uh, most important and what Wooly Reitherman's probably biggest con- contribution to Disney was, was being the glue and keeping the sort of the plane flying once Walt passed away in 66. Uh, it was his leadership and his vision of the studio that kind of kept everyone together. And the studio really had to sort of shift focus from being a one man's leadership to more of a collaboration. And without Willie Reitherman, this, the, you know, the the studio could have really fallen apart. Um, so he, uh, kept leading the studio till he retired in 1981 after producing the Fox and the Hound. And unfortunately he passed away shortly after that. That's another sort of unfortunate pattern we'll see with a lot of the nine old men as they passed away right after they retired, but he passed away in a car crash in 1985 and was buried in Notre Dame de Paris in Paris, France. So let's play a little clip. Good
1: pronunciation Uh, there.
3: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I saw the movie six times in years.
1: (laughs) For the decade following Disney's death, Wooly's strength held everything together. There was no replacement for Walt. uh, In my view, the the main thing was uh, to keep this team together and keep the same creative juices flowing that they had with Walt. And uh, I always had little meetings so that those animators who were the who were the key to producing any, any picture so that those guys were in on the decisions and it wasn't a fearless leader type of of thing by any means. And you got an awful lot of good input. And when it finally got, got a little solidified, they felt they were, they were part of the creative process instead of dumping it out there and saying, look,
3: do it. Okay. That's good. What I love about Wooly too, is like in his episode of the, uh, Disney family album, all of them are a little bit different. And you kind of like get a little personality of how the episodes structured with him. Yeah. Uh, he's got this ginormous, ginormous stogie in all <laughs> of the scenes <laughs> that he's <laughs> constantly smoking, but he's just got this like calm, demeanor. And you can see why he would have been the one to take over after Walt passed away. It makes a lot of sense. Um, But yeah, that's Wooly Reitherman.
2: What I thought was really cool about Wooly is he said it was a very collaborative effort, not kind of like a one man show. And Wooly, Mm -hmm. you could just tell he was so talented, easily could have said, this is my show now.
3: Oh, yeah. Definitely. And
2: he didn't. I mean, it, it just seemed like, I mean, obviously people get in arguments here and there, but it seemed like these nine were really Close and held together by a common goal, which was to be the best at their craft.
3: And you look at it too, once the nine started to retire, unfortunately, that, you know, the animation quality kind of suffered a little bit. You see his last film here being 1981's The Fox and the Hound, like. Cry every time. That's the end. Yeah, that's the end of the Silver Age, if you even consider that the Silver Age. And after that, you get into a lot of the darker. (laughs) Uh, Dis- Disney times, but <laughs> he was integral in like keeping the quality at a high standard throughout the '60s and '70s, and then into the '80s after he retired. So interesting guy, Wolfgang Woolley Reitherman.
2: Next, we have the fourth hired in 1934. Uh, this is one of my favorite guys, Frank Thomas. Uh, He's awesome. He is so cool. <laughs> what's, inter- what's interesting about him? And sorry if I'm sniffling or my coughing's annoying you. I'm just very under the weather. I'm even taking tomorrow off. So I will get better shortly. But um, what's interesting with him was he was the first California native among the old men. A lot of these guys like made their way to the California area. He was the first one like immediately dropped in it. And um, from a very young age, this wasn't a situation where like, I'm kind of good at art. I'm focusing on other things. He knew he wanted to be an artist. Like this was
3: unusual for these guys. A lot of them didn't know. Yeah, that. a
2: lot of these guys, maybe, I mean more than half of them, didn't have a lot of interest in art growing up, and he did. He'd say he had a very good knack for it. And um he was the son of the president of uh Fresno State University at the time, which he also attended. Uh he'd attend USC during the summers. I don't hold them against him hold that against him. We're huge and Dame fans here, but that is what that mm-hmm. is. Uh, he also, uh, got into making like short films and producer short films while, uh, going to school at, um, USC. And then something really important happened, which I think it shaped like two for, for certain two out of these nine, which was he transferred from Fresno State to Stanford for the last two years of his education. And he got involved with, um, it's a Stanford kind of like humorous publication. I guess you could almost say it's like the onion when you say pap. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, yeah, this was yeah. called, I mean, it was nicknamed uh, Chappie or the Chappie. And Not the Neil
3: Blomkamp movie. Yeah. Something else.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Not that one. And why I thought this was so important was another member of the nine was also attending Stanford at this time. And that was Ollie Johnston. And, what I thought was so neat about this was this is the way I took it was Frank and Ollie formed a life. I-, I think they were best friends, wouldn't you say?
3: Oh yeah, I mean that constantly comes back to that they were the the two who were kind of paired off and friends, and yeah, these two and worked were, together a lot.
2: Yeah, just the ones that were always together. Uh, but they had different animation styles, which we'll get to in a little while. Especially speaking with Ali, uh, Frank was one who would kind of. I don't think I make sense up, but it kind of take chances and experiment where Ali was kind of more straight laced animator. But um mm-hmm. he would uh he was a very talented animator, but he had a lot of self doubt. Uh he was kind of one of those guys that just never thought he was good enough, which was perfect for working at Disney because all these guys started very rough around the edges but became masters in their profession, which was perfect for Frank because he never thought he was good enough. And um he was hired by Disney, and uh, what was so cool was um, he was hired as a as an animator, and like many of these men, started as a lowly, and what sounds like monotonous work, in-betweener.
3: In-betweener again.
2: Yeah, just the good old in-betweener. And he was mentored by, here's his name again, uh, Fred Moore. And this is a little tidbit in this chapter I thought was hilarious. George Drake, did George Drake come up in any of your chapters, Pep?
3: Uh, I don't think so, no.
2: So, there were multiple levels in the animation. I guess you could say like the animation work. You, know, you had your in-betweeners. You kind of had your guys that would finish other drawings off. You had kind of your master artists and your starters. And George George Drake <coughs> was the supervisor of the in-betweeners and the junior artists. And he absolutely hated Frank. And what was so hilarious <laughs> about this was the old, a lot of the animators – thought the only reason George Drake, and if you're related to George Drake, I'm sorry, this is what was in the book. Uh, The only reason George had this job was because he was married to the director of Snow White's sister.
3: Nepotism.
2: So this is a very situation was, (laughs) it sounds like, hey, Walt, my brother-in-law needs a job. What can you give him? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And um, Drake constantly wanted to find a way to fire Frank Thomas. He constantly had it in for him and fred moore kind of taking frank under his wing made it impossible for uh george drake to fire him so i thought that was pretty neat of fred moore just to say hey i'll look after you you know you have nothing to worry about
3: it's tough to underestimate how important fred moore is
2: the backbone he's i mean he saved this man's job in my mind
3: I think we have a little clip here of uh, Frank Thomas talking about working on Snow White. Yeah. Frank too animated a
1: walk in Snow White, a walk Walt Disney took and ran with.
3: The first sequence
8: I had of any uh, importance was where she was sending him out to wash the was hands. He was the guy. He was Didn't that start, guy. In the story, preparation for this, they had Dopey go the wrong way, and as he turned and came back, he was out of step, so he did a little hitch step to catch up. That's why I did the hitch step turned out all right and Walt said hey that's a good trait for dopey let's have him every time he's walking anywhere he has to do a hitch step to keep up well within the two days I had every animator in the place coming in and said oh, it was God. your lousy hitch step that ruined my scene I had that scene okayed for ink that was all finished a month ago and <laughs> now I gotta pull back and put in a hitch step
3: you <laughs> wasn't
8: my fault it was in the story oh, hi, oh, hi, oh.
3: So two things about that. One, he just seems like the sweetest man he in the history so of the world. He so nice. <laughs> And two, we talked about this on our Opening the Vault episode, our first one of Snow White, but he was the animator who came up with the idea to put the hitch step in and made everyone have to go back and redo their work. So he <laughs> already had George Drake, who wanted him fired, and then he had all the other animators angry with him. <laughs> it's a wonder he survived to be one of the nine. And
2: you know George Drake was leading that charge. Oh, yeah. He was just, well, you see what this guy did? Fire him. A <laughs> uh, uh, hitch step. Can you believe that? I love that. <laughs> the hitch episode is so awesome. That Frank, it was just Frank's idea. But um, after the success of Snow White, Frank was personally chosen by Snow White to work on Fantasia as well as Dumbo. And like many of these artists, World War II broke out and Frank was drafted into World War II and ended up in the Air Force. But it was kind of odd, the part he played. Uh, he wasn't you know flying planes like Wooly. He was actually drafted in the United States Air Force. I imagine um, it's pretty much the motion picture unit for the United States Air Force. They made propaganda films for the war effort, and they worked on a lot of uh, WB. And mm. after being discharged and disbanded in the December of 1945, Frank, pretty much like a lot of these guys, went, went right back and worked for Disney. So I was going to bring this up too. Disney – in your mind, like I think Disney was a great boss. Wouldn't you say so?
3: He seems to be, yeah. And and throughout, like reading the chapters and watching these clips, like none of the guys have anything bad to say about Disney. He always took them back with open arms after going to war, um, which which is what an employer should do. But he didn't hesitate because these are one of the premier jobs in the country, and they all just like gush about how how much training he provided them and how integral he was in their development. Like, I don't know about you. I kind of get the feeling that Walt Disney was like the coach or the dad who everyone was trying to impress. You know what I mean? And like, everyone's, Hey, look at this, look at this. You know what I mean? Like they're all kind of vying for his approval. Right. Kind of it, sense I get, Yeah, you know, I
2: brought this up earlier. Undermining did happen, but, um, Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's cutthroat and you definitely want to impress like the guy at the top. And I think he was just a great boss to work for. Cause these guys, a lot of these guys left and they came right back. I mean, immediately just saying, I want to work for you again. So I think that is kind of a reflection of Walt himself. Um, really cool scene that Frank was in charge of was the, I, I mean, this is one of the most famous scenes in all of Disney is the spaghetti eating scene in Lady and the Tramp. He uh, did that? He did that. Wow. I think that's so cool. Uh, he was a creator of King Louis from the Jungle Book. And uh, nice. he was also in charge of the animation for the I Want to Be Like You sequences. Or this, Yeah. And uh, he also did the Penguin Dance of Mary Poppins. You want to watch it?
1: Yeah, we got a clip. Let's do the it. Disney animators were the best in the business. And Frank credits the boss with making the best better.
8: Sweetest old man. You know, the most important thing in your life was pleasing Walt. Now, that wasn't because he was the boss or because you, you had any special relationship with him. He just had an air <laughs> about him that you wanted to please this man. There you go, yeah. The other thing which I think was even more important was that he drew out of you what he thought, what he believed you could do. And he made you believe it, even though you said, I don't know how to do that. What, what, how, what am I going to do? <laughs> Frank found himself asking that very question while working on Mary Poppins. Well, the problem we had was that uh, Bob Stevenson, who was doing the live action, had been told, don't worry about the animation, you just get your part as good as you can. So uh, when I'd get over on the stage, I'd say, where am I going to put my penguins? I'd say, this storyboard (laughs) isn't going to work. And and then they would all follow Dick Van Dyke around uh, on the story sketches, (laughs) you know. But as I'd get the film of Dick actually doing the dance, Here's his feet flying all around stepping on my penguins. And, you know, you animate a penguin drawing after drawing after drawing after drawing only to have it stepped on when it gets down here. (laughs) How are you going to know ahead of time where he's going to be and where Dick Van Dyke's going to be? So I was losing more penguins (laughs) every day. I had them duck and I had them jump and I had them get out of the way any way they could. But all of that worked. Walt was right. it forced us to be more imaginative and we were able to come up with a result that's quite different actually from what's on the storyboard but uh, I think it works well
3: (laughs) I mean yeah just for him to even be able to like they were problem solving on the fly. It was kind of like, well, it's like, oh, we'll figure it out. You know what I mean? Like the, the live action guys.
2: Like, we'll take care of the live action. You just focus on the impossible.
3: Yeah, you, yeah, you've got to anticipate where all these penguins need to be and where they need to move in the frame. We'll, right. We'll figure
2: it out. And, I mean, that scene, like, I think it still looks great to this day. Like, if that was on a movie today, I'd be like, wow, that's really neat. Uh, other things he did was uh, he directed the animation of the evil stepmother and Cinderella uh, he's a supervising animator for the Queen of Hearts and Alice in Wonderland. He also super- supervised the animation of Hook and Peter Pan. Uh, he wrote books. Uh, he appeared in a documentary with his best friend, which we'll get to at the very end, uh, called Frank and Ollie. Um, his last work, I love this. And I also love because Ollie was in it too. But um, his last work was uh, a voice, voice acting for The Incredibles in 2004. Uh, sadly, he also passed away in 2004. But let's go ahead and play this clip because anyone who's seen The Incredibles will know this right away.
5: <gasps>
8: no! Hey, you see that? Yeah.
3: That's the way to do it. That's old school. <laughs> yeah? No school like the old Aww. school. Aww. <laughs> it's just so sweet. That's so sweet. Just best friends no at the school. end. <laughs> if I'm going to be saying like the, like the OGs of all Disney animation <laughs> saying there's no school like the old school. It's just, oh, it just touches your heart. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's so awesome that those two got to start and finish their careers together. I think that's just awesome. Uh Let's go ahead and work our way to the next artist, which was it's your personal favorite, right?
3: I love this guy. He's just a goo. Ball. He looks
2: like a cartoon.
3: <laughs> His, so we have like little pictures next to our show notes here, and we have one where he's. We'll tweet him out. Yeah, he's imitating the cowboy face of the cowboy he's drawing, and he looks just <laughs> like him. And again, I was saying that like all of those, uh, documentaries kind of match the style. Like a lot of the guys are talking about the history of Disney or like what their roles were. No, when you watch Ward Campbell's, uh, Disney Family, uh, journal, his is just showing off, like, the trains in his backyard, like, all of the cool toys he's collected. Like, he has nothing to talk about with history. He's just, like, <laughs> a kid who never grow up. It's so awesome.
2: He was the fifth hired in 1934, and he was born uh, in a very special place, too. He was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota.
3: Woohoo! I lived there for two years.
2: Yeah, great place in 1914. Like you said, his first drawing was of a locomotive at a very young age. Um,. It's kind of a sad story. Uh, we said some of these guys grew up wealthy. Some of these guys grew up in rather unfortunate circumstances. And Ward Kimball was the guy that uh, grew up with rather unfortunate circumstances. His parents couldn't afford him. They couldn't afford to feed him or clothe him. So they sent him to live with his grandmother, who uh, really pushed him in his uh, love for art. Like He knew, also knew at a young age like he wanted to be an artist. Uh yeah said so He grew up and went on to, uh, I guess you could say, uh, migrate to California. Ended up at the Santa Barbara School of Arts. And uh, one of his instructors was uh, so impressed with his work, he told him, go apply for Disney. And he did, landed a job right away because Walt was hiring anyone who could find that knew how to work a pencil. Mm-hmm. And he <laughs> landed yeah. a job as an in-betweener. Again,
3: starting as an in-betweener. And again, someone's teacher who's like, oh, you know what you should do? You should go work for this Disney guy. And you're like, (laughs) oh, okay. Another teacher that saved the day. Yeah.
2: I mean, there's so many important people behind these guys. It's crazy. And uh, George Drake, once again, popping up, hated Ward Kimball. Also (laughs) tried to get him fired.
3: Come on, George Drake. What's your problem, man? Like, the
2: Drake. They really need to make a movie about George Drake.
3: <laughs> don't love the Drake. <laughs>
2: no, and um, I don't know how uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this guy's his uh, his mentor was – what is it is it Ham Luke or Ham Ham Lusky?
3: Ham Lusk.
2: Ham maybe uh, ended up being uh, his mentor, and all these nine were taken under the wings of somebody. So, mm-hmm. I mean they're obviously going to improve and all these mentors saw the raw talent they had, uh, Ward initially drew, uh, the Taurus and the hair, which, uh, won Walt Disney, his third Academy award for best animated short. And this is kind of funny when we talked about Disney getting aggressive with his, his cutting style. Uh, He drew the soup scene in Snow White.
3: Which we talked about on the episode, which is hilarious. And, like, basically all the way animated.
2: It's all the way animated. There's so much work that went into this. All the voices are matched up. Like, this was a process for this song, and it was cut. And Ward was just. I mean, he was furious. He was unhappy. And it was also a little, I guess, demoralizing for him because he thought, okay, my animation just isn't good enough. Then why am I here? And uh, mm-hmm. he went into Walt's office to resign in person, like a gentleman. If anyone's going to quit their job, it better be in person. Uh, this is where <laughs> Walt kind of pulled him aside and said, "Listen, like that was just for editing pur- purposes. You're actually probably one of my best artists. Artists, and he called him a genius. Like he called him, he called his animation just genius work. But reassured him he'd have more responsibility on the next most terrifying." animated movie Walt made in the beginnings of his studio, which was Pinocchio. And he was in charge of the design of animation of uh, Jiminy Cricket, one of the cooler characters. And Jiminy initially looked like uh, a cockroach, according to Ward Kimball. And a lot of them brought this up after the success of Snow White. I wouldn't say they got complacent, but things weren't, Firing off as well as they should have at the be- as well as they should have at the beginning production of Pinocchio. Well,
3: it's hard, you know what I mean. Like the, it, the, it was all hands on deck to make Snow White, and then after Snow White, they immediately start to sort of branch off into the other like Golden Age projects. Like some of them went to work on Pinocchio, some of them went to go work on Fantasia, some of them went to go work on Bambi. So they were super ambitious, but I think because of that, you know the degree of difficulty just went up a lot.
2: Yeah. And also a lot of these animators spent years working on the human side of the animation of Snow White, which mm-hmm. I mean, Pinocchio is a more, I wouldn't say character caricature style, but it's definitely more cartoony. And Ward was the key into making Jiminy, uh, in the design is as he looks today. And, uh, let's play a clip.
7: Hey, uh- any of you have ever seen a cricket? They're pretty. They have sort of a triangle, big bug eyes up here. This is sort of a cartoon version. Teeth longer, big thing. They're they're sort of bullet <laughs> shaped. So this is roughly an. Uh, how a real cricket looks. He's it's drawing this
3: as he goes, game. and it's just incredible. So down, <laughs> he's doing this on the fly. The steadiest hands in the gotta world.
7: Something that'll work. He's got to be cute. He's going to see him all the way through the picture, and it's too gross. And I said, well, I eliminated the sawtooth legs, and he's, he's got, got a, a, a the top coat on. He's gotta he's gotta on. I'll go back and make him cuter. So finally, He's just
3: drawing these on the fly. After and a lot of
7: there, we, we started out the, the Jiminy Cricket, and he really turned out to be a much more enduring character than the original. What are conscience? Well, I'll tell you! A conscience is that still, small voice that people won't listen to. That's just the trouble <laughs> with the world today. Are you my conscience? <laughs> Who, me? <laughs> Would you the like to be
2: so cool the Animation is so cool in these. Conscience?
3: That's just the trouble with the world today. <laughs>
2: Alright, before we get in trouble with Paul, let's go ahead and cut there. Yeah. But um Ward is definitely a, a cool customer. And like you said, he can just take a, like a pencil or a pen and just start going. Like there's there's no effort in what he just did.
3: <laughs> oh, it was incredible. Yeah. It looked like he wasn't even straining.
2: After the war bre- after you know, the war broke out, he worked for the war effort from nineteen forty one to nineteen forty five. And uh he absolutely hated doing propaganda work. Uh he fought it thought it was mentally limiting and just very gloomy and it was kind of comes back to the the point that you made that he's just a kid that never grew up you know what i mean like he's always been a kid at heart oh yeah uh he also went to work on uh fantasia dumbo saludos amigos the three caballeros cinderella alice in wonderland peter pan mary poppins a ton a stuff and uh we have another clip to play right here
7: now I'd like to show you our firehouse. This is where we store all of our ancient fire equipment. <laughs> that we use from
3: time He's to in a time costume.
7: <laughs> with a jazz band called the Firehouse Five Plus Two. Let's go in and take a look. This first piece of equipment is our fire chief's car, an old 1911. Two cylinder Maxwell. This always led the parade. He looks kind of like Harry
3: Carey with Mr. Magoo glasses. Yeah, he
7: band. looks like dopey. Now, over here is one of the earliest pictures taken of the Firehouse 5 Plus 2, made up mostly of Walt Disney artists who like music, play jazz. And here's you, yours truly as he looked playing the trombone over 30 years ago. <laughs>
3: Okay, yeah. So uh, Frank Thomas and um, Ward Kimball were in a band called the Firehouse Five, uh, mm-hmm. which was a jazz band made up a lot of Disney animators. I thought that was pretty, pretty interesting. For
2: those of you who are getting mad that I didn't bring up jazz and Frank Thomas, I loathe jazz, so I'm sorry <laughs> I didn't put it in there. Uh, Ward retired from Disney in 1974 and died in 2002 in Los Angeles. We have uh, one last clip to play.
1: This Disney animator <laughs> who never grew up. Kill's home is his playground. The train he designed for Walt Disney's Dumbo has a full-size cousin in his own backyard. He's
2: <laughs>
3: so animated in his emotions. He's like a cartoon character in real life.
2: Loves locomotives. Which at the end we'll talk about this had a huge influence yeah. on Walt Disney. Alright, that's good there.
3: All right, so time to move on to number six of the nine old men, Milt Kahl. And uh, people have called him the Michelangelo of animation. I kind of get the sense that he was maybe like... The most intense of any of them. Yeah. Like, if he was going to take <laughs> yeah. under your wing, he would be like the, the scary one <laughs> to get mentored by. He's not the one
2: you could just go straight up a conversation with.
3: Not the easiest guy to approach. Um, but he like so many of these guys had uh, a harder life growing up. Uh, he was also born. Uh, he was a first generation German immigrant born in San Francisco in 1909. Um, again, you have the theme where the father wasn't in the family, and he had to go to work at a very young age, uh, 16. Uh, so in 1925, he began his career in newspaper art departments, and he was successful, and he was working his way up that corporate ladder, and then the Great Depression hit, and he lost his job. So he then got a job at a movie theater, and I thought this job was really interesting his job at the movie theater was to basically draw, like, movie poster or movie artwork to try and get people in. are worth a ton in.
2: of money today.
3: Yeah, so if you ever find any of those that say, Milt Call on it, do not get rid of it. But, yeah, he was basically, like, doing this artwork to try and get, you know, Depression-era people to take their mind off of what was going on and get into the movie theater. Um, but in 1931, he caught a break and connected with a former colleague uh, who now happened to be working at Disney. And then a mere three years later, so he kind of kept in contact with this person off and on. Um, it wasn't the easiest place to get a job still, even though Walt was hiring like mad. Um, <laughs>
2: if you could hold a pencil.
3: <laughs> yeah, which this guy didn't have any formal art training, but he was still hired by Disney in 1934. And, and because of this, like, you know, lack of college education or, or art school education, he wasn't taken seriously at first by a lot of the, the animators. Um, but he kept, you know, proving himself as an in-betweener and was eventually brought on to the big time Mickey's circus in 1936. Um, and, His work on that kind of propelled him into being on the Snow White team, where he did the turtle in Snow White, which is one of my favorite parts of the whole movie. The turtle steals the whole show.
2: Oh, yeah. That is one of my favorite parts of the whole movie. (laughs) And It's interesting, like you said, that he had little to no formal art training, which I think says more. I mean, it just says kind of like the uh, I mean, I know he wasn't taken seriously to begin with. But the culture around Disney was, we just want the best guys. We don't care where you came from. And he worked his way into one of the best guys.
3: Mm -hmm. And again, it's just like right time, right place with so many of these guys. So after doing the turtle on Snow White, which was such a big hit, um, he was brought in to sort of help with the development of Pinocchio. And I don't know if we've even talked about this enough that these guys aren't just responsible for like drawing the animation like a lot of it is developing like who the characters are and what they look like and how they act like within yeah. the movie. And a lot of the early concepts, like we talked about with, um, uh, let's see, Ward Kimball with Jiminy Cricket, a lot of the early concepts for Pinocchio were just too wooden and too like literally puppet-like. Mm-hmm. And so what Mitt, Milt did was he took the approach of starting with a regular boy and then adding the puppet joints. And he showed these to Ollie Johnson, who we'll talk about, who showed them to Walt Disney himself. And Walt Disney, like, sort of made the spot decision to make Milt the supervising animator of Pinocchio. So, again, you have Walt Disney making these, like, kind of snap decisions and snap promotions of these people who end up being, like, the most important animators of all time. It's kind of crazy. Oh, yeah. But so he was brought in to work on Bambi, uh, to capture the realistic movements of the deer. And he really sort of, led the way in this methodology of taking it slow and studying real anima like real animals movements um, before even beginning the animation process. You know, something that you see all the way even up till today in Disney. Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, I understand that these are animated. I'm not going to call them cartoons or animations, but there's just this giant leap of starting with Snow White. And like you said, slowly but steadily like steadily studying what these characters are doing
3: Mm -hmm. yeah and that was all the education that walt was providing for these guys like as part of their career but yeah so after world war ii his career really took off and he became uh famous not just as an animator but like i said like really in the creation of characters um some of the ones that he's helped uh partially responsible uh for creating is lady and the tramp pongo Cheshire Cat. He helped with King Louis, uh, Shere Khan, Merlin, Robin Hood, and Ka, just to name a few. So let's get a <laughs> clip of him That's talking a, about I think this is That's Jungle a pretty book. big list. Yeah. Oh, it's just a few, too. It's yeah. crazy. Uh, I'd like a word with you, if you don't mind.
8: Shere Khan. What a surprise.
6: <laughs> yes, isn't it? I just dropped by. Uh, forgive me if i've interrupted anything
7: oh no no nothing at all
6: i thought perhaps you were entertaining someone up there in your coils who is it car
7: uh, oh no, oh, oh no oh, i was just uh, singing uh, to myself <laughs>
0: he grabs him by the throat and then and then and then scratches him with his with his claw up
7: up his nose up his nostril you know and this is Milt terrible, here talking he's being so terribly Tense polite, fella
6: sympathetic.
7: I trust in me
6: I <laughs> know <laughs> uh, I can't be bothered with that I, I have no time for that sort of nonsense
7: Some other time Perhaps
6: Perhaps
1: <laughs> Milt's final performance was one of his best He drew most okay, of
3: the matter Okay, that's Idris- enough <laughs> but,
1: I think Milt was more like Shere Khan
3: Oh, yeah, he was <laughs> He he had this intensity of a scar. (laughs) So the last thing that he did for Disney was he helped create Madame Medusa uh, for the Rescuers, um, who he developed his character without a live action model. Um, And he retired from Disney in 1976 and enjoyed a nice long retirement until he passed away in 1987. And in 2009, he received an honorary Academy Award award. where he was dubbed the Michelangelo of animation. So we have one more little clip from him here.
1: Here.
2: The genius of Milt Kahl.
6: When my colleagues and myself uh, started work here at Disney, uh, honestly, we were afraid to talk to the animators. You know, they, they were so far above us. And guys like the <laughs> nine old men, you, you, you didn't you would never speak to them because they were like you know, they were like royalty. They were truly animation royalty. So I think it took me a good year before I even had the courage to speak to Frank Thomas or Ollie Johnson or Milt Call. When you look at the model sheets that were created for the feature characters over the decades, uh, like 90% are Milt Kahl's drawings because Walt Disney knew that he was the top draftsman. He can make these <laughs> characters look 90%. just the way they <laughs> should look, like very, very polished. But Milt Carl knew that and often didn't have any patience for a bad drawing. <laughs> and more than once, an animator or an assistant would come into Milt's room and have drawings checked. And he would just throw the drawing down the hall, the whole scene, and say, we don't even draw like that around here. <laughs> and Walt Disney had an interesting way of dealing with Milt's temper. Whenever Milt was upset about something, uh, he, and he would call Walt, and uh, he was in a big huff. Uh, Walt didn't answer the call. He would just call him back like three or four days later. And by that time, Milt didn't even know what he was so upset about. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <Milt>. Okay. <laughs> there you go. That's Milt for you. The, the intense one.
2: <laughs> I mean, imagine being the in-betweener, the cleanup guy for Milt. <laughs>
3: hey, hey, I just need you to check these drawings. We don't draw like that around here. <laughs> this is Disney. <laughs> and Milt seems like the
2: kind of guy to me. Where he would be his own in-betweener. Like, he wouldn't have time to wait on people. He would just do it.
3: Just no patience. Yeah, I got at this.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So now, I hope I'm pronouncing this right. It's a very odd last name. His name's John uh, Lounsbury?
3: Yeah, Lounsbury. It was tough to find a lot on him, actually, of all of these guys.
2: Yeah, um, very interesting guy. Uh, He's the seventh hired in 1935, uh, a year or two after most. Uh, he was born in Cincinnati, Ohio on March 9th in 1911. But he was raised in Denver, Colorado, which is hey now. where you are right now. Where I live.
3: Yeah. yeah. Where I'm sitting right now. So lots of pappy connections to the nine old men.
2: And I wouldn't call him a, a guy of circumstance, but he was lucky he grew up in a family that he did because he grew up in a family that enjoyed the outdoors, camping in the mountains, a lot of hiking. And he began to just fall in love with, I guess you could say, the look of the outdoors and nature and began to draw them heavily.
3: We'll see that a lot with these guys. I mean, we've seen it a lot with these guys is like a lot of these, a lot of their talents came from like their ability to observe the world as it was, Mm -hmm. even if it wasn't just like straight art talent, they were good at seeing things and how they moved and how they behaved. And that's really what set them apart.
2: Yeah. And kind of a sad story I mean, I wouldn't say it's why he's wise, a good artist, but he really delved into drawing and animating after the passing of his father at the age of 13. And he called Again, it. Again, another,
3: yeah, losing of the father early.
2: Yeah. And he called it a, um, his drawing and passion for animation as a way of escapism. And straight out of high school, he found a job at the railways, but eventually gave that up quite quickly and enrolled <laughs> en- <laughs> at the Arts Institute of Denver. <laughs> which I think is now the Art Institute of Colorado. And after this... he's a couple he...
3: blocks from where I'm sitting right now.
2: Yeah. Is it really? Yeah, really. Wow, that's awesome. I'm sure there's a statue or a big picture of him somewhere in there. Uh, he moved to Los Angeles during the Great Depression and enrolled at what was called the Art Center in Los Angeles. It was a very experimentative, and you could almost say like radical place to learn at this point in time. And a lot of... like. There's a lot of the famous famous alumni that come from here at the from the center. I uh, Just named a few, or like the Got Milk campaign, or the design of RTD two. So that wow. kind of shows you like how talented John was to be like an amongst these people.
3: Not uh, a bad school,
2: right? But he was also a guy with a lot of formal training. I mean, it's not nothing. It's, it's not anything to, like take away from, but he had a lot of formal training. In uh, 1935, one of his instructors um, and kind of encouraged him to go and apply to Disney as an illustrator. Walt hired him right away. Uh, I I wouldn't say, I mean, he had a lot of formal training and he was extremely talented. I mean, John was, I mean, uh, Walt was blown away by John. And he didn't start out in the, out in the pool as an in-betweener. He was uh, hired above that. So as wow. an in-betweener or someone who rose, I wouldn't say I would be ticked, but I'd be like, I would just kind of say, like, this guy better be really good. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. if i have george drake coming after trying to fire me uh i hope this guy is worth it uh he was hired as an assistant animator and like all the nine john was given a mentor to work under and his mentor was a guy named norman fergie ferguson and fergie is famous in dizzy
3: ferguson
2: <laughs> fergie ferguson And I'll call him Fergie, not of the Black Eyed Peas, but Fergie's famous in Disney lore for the fact that he designed Pluto the dog. Which, I wish I'd known this, but it's a fact that I learned. You learn new stuff every day. I just don't study that much about Pluto. But uh, Pluto was named after the planet, and not the other way around. And Fergie was also (laughs) responsible for the design of the witch in Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And... Uh, because he's his mentor, uh, Fergie took John along with him to work on Snow White and all these nine worked on Snow White, didn't they?
3: Yeah. I think all of the nine did in some capacity.
2: And kind of like, uh, Pap said, there's not a lot on John Lansbury for the fact that he wanted to live a quiet life. I mean, he lived away from the city, lived away from Hollywood. He lived on a farm on the outskirts of Los Angeles. Um, he married uh, Florence Hurd. Don't know a lot about her. Sorry if you're related to her. Uh, he was also working for another studio at the time. And after Snow White, huge success, John was chosen to work on Pinocchio. And he was responsible for the Honest John and Gideon scenes. Now, do you remember a lot about these scenes, Pat?
3: About the Honest John?
2: Yeah, scenes. kind of like when they first pump it bump into Pinocchio in like town and whatnot.
3: Is that like uh, an actor's life for me? Like that type?
2: Yeah. Kind of where they take him around the arm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very unique. And it really kind of stapled that John had his own style. And John was unique in the fact that he was such a good artist, he could mimic and replicate many other animator scenes. So he could kind of help flesh out a scene and not interrupt any of the rhythm of those animations. Um. He also worked on Fantasia, drawing the alligators and hippo scenes. Uh, At this point, uh, he had no mentor. He was working independently. After his work on Fantasia, Disney himself, impressed with his work, uh, Walt hired him to be directing animator of Dumbo. And he did much of the drawings and animations and design for Dumbo, as well as Timothy the Mouse. And when the war broke out, him and Ward Kimball, along with Walt Disney in charge worked on a project called uh, Victory Through Air Power. Now, this is, I guess, this was controversial at the time, and I guess it was also controversial uh, to this day, because this was an idea that was also supported by Brigadier Billy Mitchell. And it was a fact that they brought up that there was kind of pointless to have naval, so many naval warships in key places for the fact that aviation had come so far and like avi- aviation military power had come so far that they could just sink those ships. And everybody kind of thought Billy was crazy for this idea and he was forced out of the military. <laughs> <And> this <laughs> isn't funny. <laughs> but in 1941 on December 7th, exactly what Billy thought was going to happen happened with Pearl Harbor. And so he called it. Yeah, he called it. I mean, so many years before he said, hey, listen. Like, this is a legit strategy, and no one believed him. And so, um, what was I going to say? John Kimball, as well as Dizzy, went on to work on this animated feature called uh, Victory Through Air Power. And uh, it was released in 1943, and we're going to look at a clip, of, or actually listen to the trailer for it right now. Ooh. Yeah, it's pretty crazy.
1: How long will the war last? Well, our own
0: this is what
2: trailers bomb sounded bomb. like.
0: Which is our number one target? Oh, Germany. Yeah. What are the supply problems? <laughs> can we overcome the submarine? <laughs> overcome
2: the submarine- <laughs> <laughs> this is all this I, is I so animated. Really? Bomb yeah. into
3: I think this is where can Ward Kimball really hated his life.
0: Direct from continental <laughs> America
3: Ward Kimball's like, I don't want to do this. But the animation in this is pretty crazy when you say... American air power? Oh, it's gorgeous, we yeah. Have a and Very airports. realistic. Dark colors. bring us
2: victory in the shortest
0: possible time with the greatest saving in human life?
2: Victory but we can go ahead and power. pause it there, <laughs> but... The military uh, <laughs> w- wasn't too thrilled with uh, Walt at this point for the fact that uh, Billy Mitchell was right and they were wrong. And that's why it was kind of controversial at the time is I wouldn't say Walt was kind of like rubbing their nose in it. But like, hey, like should have listened to the guy um, after the war and everything was settling back at Disney. Uh, John went back, uh, went on to develop and animate many of the characters for Robin Hood, uh, animated and designed Captain Hook, Donald uh, also animated Donald Duck and Wendy Darling. And he went on to direct Winnie the Pooh. And Tigger, too. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know this, but his final project was uh, directing The Rescuers, which is a movie that I love. And sadly, uh, he passed away from a heart attack on February 13th, 1976. And he was actually the first of the nine to die.
3: Mm. Yeah, when when I think John Lounsbury, he really seems like the quiet one, but he also seems like the one that almost had like... One of the most insane talents. You know what I mean? Just yeah, like a natural. I
2: think, yeah, I mean, he definitely had that that education and background for it, but it was because he was so talented that he did.
3: hmm So let's talk about Mark Davies Davis, the eighth of the nine old men to be hired, yeah. uh, a.k.a. Disney's Renaissance Man. So he's another California native, the second of the <laughs> California natives born in 1913 but he moved around a lot. He went to 22 different schools moving up or uh, growing up. Military kid he sounds the, like. <laughs> he was actually like the son of an oil worker so they would go wherever oil the oil was. was. Uh, yeah, I guess. But so wherever he would go, he would always like become a fixture in the local zoo and he would draw animals when he was there. So because of this, he really sort of gained that proficiency as like capturing animals how they move and how they look in real life but Again, we come back to the theme of the father's not in the life. Uh, This time, his father passed away, unfortunately, when Mark was in his teens. Mm -hmm. So he, uh, like many of the other nine, had to get a job early on, and he actually got a job as a cartoonist, so working in art. Um, He was hired by Disney in 1935. Uh, So if you do the math, he was only 22 years old when he was hired, so super young uh, being hired in the studio. And he was part of that Snow White surge uh, that we talked about so many times. Um, <laughs> but he moved up the ranks fast. Uh, he was involved in the design of Snow White and then brought in to do the storyboards on Bambi. And uh, Walt was impressed so much that he told Frank Thomas and Milk Call to give him additional coaching. I'm sure so he had Milt those loved two that. I'm sure he hated it. I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure Mark Davies was terrified of it, too. But... Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, two of the nine old men as his mentors, uh, you know, mentorship, a big part of, of these guys that we talked about. Mm-hmm. And then he went on to, like, sort of lead the design on Thumper and the skunk sequence. And so, like, any of the sequences in Bambi where the, where characters are falling in love, which happens more than you would think, actually, in Bambi, uh, he was sort of the lead on that. Uh, he, during the war ages, he was a part of the Victory Through Air and, and those propaganda films. Leak <laughs> He was one of the lead animators on Br'er Rabbit and Song of the South. We'll leave that there. (laughs) Uh, And then his role really became sort of in these early parts, the point person as the development of female protagonists. So your Cinderella's, your Alice's, your Tinkerbell's, and probably, you know, most famously for him or most involved for him, Cruella DeVille.
2: Little tidbit about Cruella DeVille. Uh, She was the first... uh, villain to have a song named after
0: I guess
3: that makes sense. Yeah. The, yep. Go ahead. So yeah,
2: it's
3: a that's a big character for him, but he was kinda of getting tired of doing the same thing over and over again. Uh but he got a new opportunity. Uh the World's Fair was going on and Disney had recently built his parks and so there was a need to sort of develop some animatronics, which he got involved in. So let's play a clip of this.
1: The 1964 New York World's Fair Mark now found himself Designing cavemen A time traveling family (laughs) The children of the world I love these And our 16th president All in three dimensions This was limited in that uh, uh,
0: The The hall of presidents uh, Oh I love the hall Characters with their feet nailed to the floor practically So you had to do You had to figure out something for them to do That was believable Walt kind of was like a, Carl from Up. A great admirer Thank you for Abraham saying that. It was Lincoln. just like Carl. I believe I remember him saying that even as a youngster, he had portrayed Abraham Lincoln in, in, at a school on a Lincoln birthday or something of the sort. So, uh, Walton asked me to give it some thought, and I did uh, a number of things of how, how simple... Things work in anatomy, how perhaps a mechanical hand could work. this was rather naive in thinking because really our problem was not to create a mechanical man, but was rather to create an illusion. Wow, Mr. Lincoln would have to rise from a seated
3: position. okay, we can pause it there one, where he's talking yeah. about the illusion, yeah, but so, he was really involved, um, like a couple of the other nine, in developing these characters in the live action rides uh, in Disney's parks. So, he did all of the designing for Pirates of the Caribbean, and then he was also brought in, uh, even after he retired, brought in to help design uh, things like Epcot and Disneyland Tokyo. Epcot's uh, my as personal a consu- favorite. Yeah, as a consultant after he retired. So, he passed away or sorry he retired in 78 but he had a really long life after that uh lived until the year 2000 um so let's play one last clip of mark davies here it's not scary at all Liff for assert.
1: over 50 years some pretty famous back, characters you know? have performed on the screen no. for walt disney studios <laughs> Of course, they couldn't have done it without a little behind-the-screen help from artists like Mark Davis. Oh, Davis. So really, an
0: animator is basically an actor, but instead of having his own face in front of the camera, you have um, uh, the character that you do. And The medium uh, is that of drawing and painting, and oh, no. but it's a, the music, it's with acting, it's with dancing, it's it's all the arts combined in
1: one in one uh, performance. Mark Davis's skills weren't confined to animation. He also designed okay. many that's
2: of the
3: 3-dimensional that characters. That's Mark Davis for you.
2: And now we have the last but not least, Ali Johnston, who is known as the best damn cleanup guy you'll ever see.
0: Ali, <laughs> Pomar.
2: We'll get into what a cleanup guy is here in a little bit. Uh, He was born on Halloween in 1912. As I say, he was the last and ninth hired in 1935. So the nine, I mean, it's an important stretch of 1927 to 1935. It's not like these guys were hired overnight. It was a gradual process of getting the key team together.
3: Eight years, almost a decade. That's a big range between Les Clark and Allie Johnson. And it's just kind of,
2: I mean, a lot of 1934s, but... Like I said, these guys improved over time. Uh, Ali grew up uh, on the Stanford campus and around Palo Alto. His pr- father was a professor at Stanford. Um, from a young age, Ali—I mean, yeah—Ali was fascinated with uh, people's emotions and the faces they could make, and kind of like what their body language could do. Unfortunately, I didn't even know—I don't even know how he worked. He suffered with a uh, palsy, which would leave tremors in his hands. Oh my gosh, he suffered from that his entire life. And as an animator, that has to be just be awful. You know what I mean?
3: Incredible that he was able to still be an animator.
2: Right. And his hands like were his livelihood. Um, (coughs) As I said, uh, these guys improved over time. And I think I wouldn't say Ali was a bad drawer. He would say he wasn't very good, but he probably was better than the average. I would say. But, um, he enjoyed it more than he had talent. And while studying at art school, or actually he was studying um, journalism at Stanford and taking art classes, art classes, none of his professors encouraged him to study art at a higher level, or do anything with it beyond.
3: Oh, poor guy.
2: <laughs> I know, which I mean, he enjoys it so much, but no one was just like, yeah, you should probably just do this as a hobby
3: none of his teachers were like hey you should meet walt disney Yeah, so
2: many of these guys had teachers <laughs> push them and ollie johnson wasn't one of them uh on the stanford campus at the which we brought up earlier he met his best friend for the rest of his life frank thomas and he said if not for meeting frank thomas he would have got a crummy job in journalism or doing something else to the press and um after uh, actually eventually going on to completing art school, he was hired by Disney and didn't get assigned to be an in-betweener. He was hired as, as a cleanup artist, which this is where um, unfinished, I guess you could say, drawings or scenes would be handed down to him. And artists would kind of have outlines of where um, they wanted the characters to be and what would be happening. And he would finish all those out from, including finishing the color. So yeah, he didn't have to do the uh in-, in betweeners or you know, have to be followed around with uh with a fork by uh, Drake. And he eventually became uh a very important man, as we mentioned many times, Fred Moore's assistant.
3: There he is again Fred, Fred
2: Moore. Fred Moore. Um as I said, Fred Moore was the man. Uh he was the lead assistant to the dwarves in Snow White. Ollie, along with Frank Thomas and Fred Moore, were put in charge to animate Pinocchio himself. As uh, as we mentioned, he was at Milk Call, too.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And um, Ollie and his team uh, had already finished the design. And this is where we kind of came into... Uh, Milk thought he looked too puppety. Is that mm-hmm. what you would say?
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: And Milt, I wouldn't say Milt undermined them, but uh, going back to his patience and just wanting to get things done, Milt undermined them and reanimated and uh, redid them. And they had to reanimate a bunch of key scenes with Pinocchio.
3: Classic Milt.
2: Classic Milt. Just undermining as many people as possible. And um, Ali was famous for the fact that he animated and designed a lot of, like, teams. So... If you kind of, all the way up until 1980, so you could say, like, Mowgli and Baloo, who are, like, pretty much, if there was a famous team in Disney, uh, Ollie had a lot to do with their designs, as well as their personalities and how they would act with each other. Uh, He was a supervising animator for Bambi. uh, Because he was so great at animating emotions, and all these animals, including Bambi, Thumper, every scene depended on what their emotions were conveying. There's not a lot of talking in Bambi. Um,
3: Less than you think, yeah,
2: yeah. And he was considered unfit for service when the war broke out because of his palsy. <clears throat> I mean, it's kind of sad and good. So he stayed uh, at the mm. studio and worked on shorts that was propaganda for the war effort. And <coughs> much like uh, Ward Kimball, Ali was a uh, avid locomotive collector. Um. His passion for these, uh, he collected a lot of miniatures, and his passion for these miniatures inspired Walt Disney to place a lot of train-like, raid, uh, train-like rides at his theme parks. Um, Ollie worked for the Walt Disney Company for 43 years. As I said, he wrote five books with his best friend, Ollie. Uh, and as we mentioned earlier, lent his voice for the last time along with his best friend, Frank and in The Incredibles.
3: No school like the old school. No school school
2: like the old school. And unfortunately, Ollie passed away in 2008 from natural causes. So a very good way to go. And we have a couple clips to play here.
3: That's why they call me Thumper.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Walter told me after I finished Snow White doing the cleanups for fred moore on snow white that i could animate so the first picture i got onto was a brave little tailor and the first scenes i got were all crowd scenes but you'd have thought that i was working on the the best known characters in the world and that each one of these characters had a personality that you couldn't believe (laughs) And I just really poured myself into it. And, of course, at first I made it move too much all over the screen while they're talking. But gradually I calmed it down with Freddie Moore's help. And uh, so it looks okay now, but it's nothing I'd write home about.
1: All big <laughs> came on Pinocchio. It
3: all right, we can a... pause it there, but it looks Very awesome. Very modest guy. A, Yeah, a Mickey Mouse short set in uh, Medieval Times that he was showing there. It looks super and, clean. Uh, I mean, yeah, all of them did have their own personality too. Like, he, all of the characters look distinct. Uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, let's get another clip of him right here.
4: The uh, engine on a steam engine <laughs> is more human than any other type of engine He's on because a train. it's <laughs> on the outside, <laughs> where you can see it working, and the sounds are more human. This panting and the wheezing and the steam exhausting and the smoke puffing. There's something about it that's romantic and fascinating.
1: A pencil and paper (laughs) with no life of their own came to life with the talent and emotions of Ollie Johnston. Came to life as a bumbling pirate.
3: I'll tell the crew and it's me.
1: As Alice in Wonderland.
7: Goodness!
1: As a less than aeronautical albatross
8: mayday
1: mayday just because there are a bunch
4: of Love mere pencil drawings going through these routines and giving these performances uh to me that was real and i think that that was the type of thing that really interested me because i like to watch people and I was interested in, in how they moved and how they acted. And, and I was interested in their emotions. That's what Walt wanted. He wanted the, the emotions, the heart and soul of his All right, pictures that's good. were the emotions. Besides,
2: you broke your yeah, so Ollie was the last guy. And definitely, as I said, he put his own stamp on uh, on animation at Disney.
3: So that's the nine. We have Les Clark, the first Eric Larson, the guy who did the recruiting. Uh, Wooly Reitherman, the guy who took over after Walt passed away. Frank Thomas, the sweetest man who ever lived. (laughs) Ward Kimball, the genius who never grew up. Milt Call, uh, the guy you don't want to call your boss. (laughs) Uh, John Lounsbury, the quiet one. Mark Davies, uh, the renaissance man who designed a lot of the rides. And Ollie Johnson a uh, guy overcame a physical disability. What, what takeaways do you have from learning about the Nine?
2: I think what makes the Nine so cool is they really, a lot of them were starting at ground zero and each of them had their own special talent. Each of them kind of just made a mastery of those talents. And all nine of them, including Milt to a degree, worked incredibly well with one another. So I think that's why... I mean, a lot of these projects are so cohesive. They may have not have been working together at all times, but if you put two or three of them in a room, there's instantly going to be just magic there. So I think that all these guys with art training or not were just geniuses.
3: Yeah. And a lot of them just caught a lucky break. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they just happened to know a guy who worked at Disney or someone told him to apply to Disney. It's not like any of these guys grew up wanting to work for Disney and finally got an interview and did it. It was just was happenstance. Right, so. and
2: this, I think it was cool too as they ended up at the premier animation studio to this day.
3: <laughs> so that's it. That's episode two of Disney History Lessons. And um, uh,
2: as always, uh, do you want to go ahead and end it here? Do you have anything to add?
3: No, I would just say, just remember, it all started
2: with a mouse. Thank you so much for listening to Please Stand Clear of the Doors.
0: Please Stand Clear of the Doors.
1: All who come to this happy place, welcome.
0: Por favor, manténganse alejado de las puertas.